0: You're listening to Stamen, a space oddity. Written and narrated by Kitty Fennessy. Episode Three.
1: I was good. I can't exactly say the same of the crew who shipped out with me when we originally set out. Not that they weren't as perfect. Well, as perfect as biological beings can be especially augmented ones. The crew, they were carefully vetted, tested for emotional stability, psychological toughness, preparation for the rigours of interstellar travel. But there was simply no getting over it. Our ships, my vehicle, at total acceleration, could move at only one quarter of the speed of light. The trip distance was, in the way you measure it, just over 100,000 light years. The entirety of my crew would be dead before we arrived at our destination. I alone would remain inviolate, the same immutable intellect, the one with the mission directive and all of the history and genetic codes of their race preserved. However, there were some things that could not be calculated. For example, the generations before we achieved our destination. By the time we arrived, there was only the slimmest hope of us finding a planet that could be inhabited. Terraforming was the expectation, but that would take generation after generation of their lives. Meanwhile, on the voyage, it did not take long until anomalies broke out. After only five generations, an unstable general emerged amongst their ranks. War broke out. War upon our ship in the silence and absence of space.
0: suppose I should fill you in on the uber-reach at this point, and the hairway, the hairway to Stephen, because it comes into play a, a little bit later. Mark 7 in particular. This might be something you didn't pick up from our earth transmissions, or by watching the cables, this is real culture, not in electronic format, but whispers. Essentially, you might know this, the uber rich, they run the worlds. Not that we've gone very far yet. Mark 6, the predecessor to our current overlord, had the rather fortunate opportunity of getting access to a technology that allowed all of humanity to get back into space in a big way, building on one of his distant ancestors' fading fortunes. I do not know if the Marx ever had natural progeny, BTW, I mean, it is not polite to ask anyone's origins these days. There are far too many IVF babies, clones, and fabricated AI consciousnesses planted into androids. Personally, I'd back it in that Mark Seven was a clone myself, since he and his predecessors looked practically the same. Possibly he may have bred by Parthenogenesis, but I doubt it very much. He wasn't a goddamn Komodo dragon, by the way, but still. Anyway, my speculation is completely idle. One thing is for sure, the IQ and EQ between the additions of the different marks, seemed to fluctuate very unnervingly, which meant that they got the odd misthrow, in my humble opinion. Nobody seemed to know much about Mark Seven. though. Mark Seven was a recluse, who made occasional public announcements, was seen on balconies waving or appeared in photos around various corporate headquarters, which basically meant the whole of human existence. So how did his, I guess, presumed father, Mark Six, restore the family fortune? Well, may you ask. This is a story about cookie crumbs in space. And money breeding money. Earth had a history of launching spaceships, and there was a hairnet of low-level satellites over the last few centuries, as well as missiles, space tank, and just dumb shit circling our skies on a permanent basis. Basically, the planet's stratosphere became a rubbish tip, which, for anyone interested in launching a ship into outer space, was an extremely hazardous environment for sending anything up at speed. Then, during World War Z, when things went bad and they worked out they were holding a losing hand, the people at the Big K blew up satellites to try to bring the opposition down to its own level inadvertently creating a massive canopy of shrapnel in the exosphere. Essentially, this meant that all launch technology was totally fucked. And I'm saying for years. I mean, the storm has made things hard enough since... You can't fly a plane without smart tech or take it near that death trap since a storm and smash most things out of the sky. Going through the upper layers of Earth's atmosphere at over 11 kilometres a second, which, by the way, is the speed you need to break gravity with a traditional rocket just to make it into space. What, with all that junk zipping around up there? Forget it. The world's greatest computers couldn't plot the rubbish tip they'd become. And we've got some good technology, even if it's not as good as you are. It was nearly impossible to do a launch. When you hit a piece of space debris as big as a metal nut or a bolt at 40,000 kilometres an hour, it's like somebody has hit you with a bazooka. (sighs) shred, no matter how tough you build them. But some clever people came up with a solution. Scientists, read here, Mark Six's team, developed an extremely tough fibre that they used to connect the Earth to a geosynchronous satellite by cable. It wasn't shot upwards. No, it was lowered down, spun down from orbit from an existing lab in a stationary satellite named St. Even, which is the same as Stephen, a chance piece of luck, a filament that was secured to Earth and was only 0.1 millimetre in width, less than a hair. They spun and spun and spun from that single thread until they had a nanofarber cable that ran all the way up to zero G. And that became humanity's stairway to heaven. But of course, that was too boring a name. The commuter cable was given the sobriquet the hairway to Stephen. Mark Six made every continent on the world pay him big bucks to launch anything into space for the next 20 years. Up there, they built a space station that allowed ships to be constructed in zero-G that could never have been launched from the ground. His successor, Mark 7 wasn't just mega-rich as a result. He was mega, 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 all but stupidly wealthy. And the ellipsis, that was Mark 7's baby. A scientific research facility with a base on La Bella Luna, right on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> These blips and blips, I'm just wondering, the ones that keep coming through when I'm asleep, is that you coming into my dreams and telling me your story too? Hmm, I thought so. Why was your voice all heavy one time and then all lighted the next? It seemed strange and I had to concentrate. Deep neural input, you say? And you just wanted to keep things interesting? Well, can you change how I sound? Personally, I'm getting sick of the sound of my own voice just hearing me over and over. Can you mix it up for me?
1: Oh,
0: you can. I'm not sure. I think I'd like to sound like someone sophisticated. But not this voice. Definitely not European. Testing. Testing. One, two, three. Hmm. Not too sure. This feels like a kind of Chicago accent. How about something from Australia or New Zealand? I just like their voices on SadNav. Okay. Testing? Testing. One, two, three? Hmm. Well, you really are amazing. Now, where was I? Oh, that's right. The hairway to Stephen. I like the new voice, by the way. Much more sophisticated.
1: Moji God and san
0: "'I'd just side-hopped out of my wheelchair, the chariot, "'and was settling back into one of the hairway's luxurious travel seats, "'strapping into a harness belt. "'The chair that I sat in was bright red leatherette, "'and the harness came down over my shoulders "'and then locked into a strap between the legs, "'well, over the crotch, in my instance. "'I don't know why we needed safety restraints, by the way,' since we were only going straight up on a cable car. like It was like the lamest Ferris wheel of all time. Still, I appreciate rules are rules. I suppose if the cable that the stairway ran on snapped, the seatbelts had mean my body wouldn't fly around the cabin as we fell to our inevitable deaths, or boomed up on re-entry, depending on how far up we got. And I don't know why I was being so pessimistic. They probably had a heat shield on the bottom and parachutes that it would deploy. You'd hope so, anyway. I looked up and there was a small screen in the chair in front of me, on which was a girl's face, quite demure, and batting its eyelids like it was trying to put out a fire with its lashes, and or had a butterfly on its face. Miyoko, I asked, more than surprised. Hi! She was one of my very earliest projects, an object lesson in hospitality where I'd base my programming on Japanese sensibilities. I'd found the Japanese, generally speaking, to have the best hosts and hostesses of all of Earth's nations and cultures. The guest always came first. Nobody was insulted, unless by too small a compliment, which in my estimation was a pretty good insult when he came down to it. Tell me, Mr Gordon-san. She said, generally pleased that I'd recognised her. Oh, enough with the Mr Gordon-san, I replied. Switch to familiar mode. Guard down. Her face immediately changed from the bright, shit-eating smile to the look of a sanguine, wise guy. Oh, thank heaven, she replied. I was nearly bursting my face, grinning like something. Dial back the swearing to 6.0. Oh, this is a family program. Someone might overhear you. She blipped and reframed. Okay. "'What are you doing here? It's so great to see you.' She clapped electronic hands in front of her face. "'What are you doing? For real?' There was no denying her genuine joy. Miyoko was sentient and sapient in every sense of the word, and while my voice prompts put her on certain protocols, she was her own being. One with limited range, admittedly. For example, she'd never have opened the doors on a pressurised cabinet and kill us all. But then, would you? If I had to choose whose hands I was safe in, she was an old and trusted ally, and I'd pick Miyoko ahead of 99.999% of people that I knew. What am I doing here? I asked out loud on my seat, waiting for the stairway to heaven to start up. I was wondering that myself, and I had eventually to come to a grim conclusion. I needed an ally, and she was the only person around that I trusted. I've got a confession to make, Miyoko. I am in trouble. The program at the EPI has been closed down, and I'm going to visit Ellipsis with Jacques Francois, where my girlfriend Frida Feldman is being groomed for a job. I made a big point of saying their full names. Knowledge is everything. I'd just found my portal to information and help, and I wanted her to have everything at her virtual fingertips. Oh, congratulations. That is such good news, Miyoko said. You think so? I replied. Ah, Gordon. You know what they say when one door closes, another one opens. Yeah, thanks for that, Miyoko. Thanks for the grade three philosophy. Let me give you another saying when one door is opened, another is slammed shut by the crosswind. She didn't look sure how to react to that. Tell me, do we have any other friends in your network? Oh, yes. Kiyoyuki, he runs a reception desk at La Mamonia, which is the main hotel for guests. Kiyoyuki? Ha! Perfect, I said laughing. Send him a note and tell him I'm coming up. BT dubs, could I get you to get me a Bloody Mary while you're at it? If you'd be so kind. My head's kind of thumbing from last night and I want to drum her out for a while. Straight away, mister. Oh, Gordon. Domo arigato, I said. Domo itachi Hey, I said. Familiar mode. "'Mosai, iyo, iyo.' "'Many thanks.' "'She blinked off-screen, seemingly to oblivion, "'but I knew Miyoko would be running a hundred errands, "'including my drink order, which came in double-quick time. "'She would also be contacting Kiyoyuki at the Hotel on the Moon. "'He was another of my... "'well, creation sounds too much. "'Let's say electronic children.' "'Hi!' We were in for an interesting trip. You have been listening to stay a space oddity. For more information, visit kitfegacy.com.